0: Namutasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sammasambutasa Uttang Dhammang Sangam Namasami Does anyone have a question? The question is about having many practices. I have a First Nations practice, I have a Medicine Buddha practice, and I have a Thirudan practice. And I know that I'm digging in many holes rather than one hole, as it were, looking for the water. But I'd like you to talk about the advantages and the disadvantages of being eclectic. Do you know, when you reflect on Anybody that has a profession, they have many tools in their profession. We get to watch carpenters a lot, because we take care of buildings here. And you can say that this meditation practice, and this Dhamma work that we're doing, is a kind of building. We're either building or deconstructing. But either way, we need a toolkit. And the Buddha gives us many tools, so in all of your practices, whatever they might be, you are honing skills. So with your indigenous dedication practices and with whatever style of practice, what is it that you're actually doing? You are delving into the heart and bringing forth certain qualities that help you to honor the most important points of this journey as a human being. Would you say that's correct? You bring tears to my eyes, I Yes. So, in that way, the project has different facets. It's just like when you polish a a doorknob that's made of brass. First you have to scrub it, maybe with some kind of creamy substance. You rub it and rub it and rub it. And then you take a clean cloth and you buff it. And you buff and buff till it glows, till it's shiny. But then there's still some spots that are tarnished. So you go back to the original thing. So there are different steps, different approaches, even in that one simple shining up, polishing up of a doorknob, let alone keeping the door from getting stuck. Like we have a door in the meditation hall that's quite large, it's made of oak, it's heavy. And after a few years, it leans and sinks and doesn't smoothly open and close. Now the carpenter came this morning and he said, I can fix that, but he has to cut into the wood and recess the hinge. So there's another feature of this simple door that we have to know about, not just the doorknob. And it's the same with the construction of a practice or the destruction of delusion. There are many... Steps that we take to achieve the goal of bringing ourselves into present moment awareness, understanding where the mind gets caught, letting go habits of mind that keep us in the darkness, bringing forth light into the heart. Some of our attitudes have to be completely retrained or discarded, And in their place, we have to enliven the awareness of our connection and our similarities with all beings, so that we don't fall into malpractices, treating some people well and others not, treating ourselves sometimes not so well and at other times well. These different approaches help us to learn how to develop patience, contentment, generosity, virtue, equilibrium, insight, discernment, wisdom, compassion, and love. Did I dispel doubts about many practices being really going in one direction of absolute wholesomeness with compassion for oneself and all others. I feel blessed. I I think of Ajahn Samedo when he says, everything is teaching us. So I just wonder if you could offer some reflections around illness, or some encouragement, or some suggestions, on keeping a positive attitude because illness is so much just a natural part of having a body. Until we have really woken up to the truth, we have a lot of mental hindrances and people are addicted to negative attitudes about anything that could possibly be wrong with the body. Those kinds of attitudes are lacking a reality check that these bodies are flawed from the moment we're born, we're bound for death. This body is on a journey of old age, sickness and death from beginning to end. What's new? What's the surprise? But there's so much delusion that human beings tend to gratify in sense pleasure to distract themselves from these realities. while. We have youth and health and well-being, there is an opportunity to probe into the real meaning of this life and to wake up to the truth of what we are, instead of believing that we are these bodies. So each of us has a karmic predicament that we're evolving with, and if we learn enough about the truth of this journey, then We can use our time here wisely. Death is just a flicker away. So we have to realize that health is also impermanent. And in fact, nature is a great teacher. But if we look at it in a negative way, then we fail to learn the lesson. So if we give ourselves to the teaching of impermanence, then through the experience of impermanence, we can actually realize enlightenment in this very moment. So spend more and more time in deep awareness of impermanence and not in negative states of mind, which make us frightened, weak, vulnerable, endangered, imperiled mentally. And you begin to see that your illness is a blessing that will help wake you up to the reality of the body and the mind, you can delve more deeply into the nature of the body and the mind, and study the mind so much that instead of being caught in the hindrances of greed, hatred, delusion, restlessness, anxiety, panic, exhaustion, and doubt, you rest in awareness of the three characteristics of the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of every conditioned phenomena, every aspect of these physical bodies, even of the mind. The mind is also impermanent moment by moment. And then you see the emptiness of this self that is clinging to all these phenomena and is ever caught in the suffering of that clinging. So those are the only obstacles to our enlightenment. And your illness is a suggestion to let go. But instead of trusting the suggestion, you trust the opinions of deluded people. So then you get dragged back into worldly ways of thinking and seeing and holding your life and present moment awareness. So you must really turn to the teaching, turn to the internal direction which will bring you back to being in the vicinity of your own liberation. That self is a deluded phenomena, an artifact of our own construction, and that's something we have to whittle away at, polish away at, just like the doorknob. It's covered with tarnish, the mind is full of this layer of thick, thick delusion that we have to polish away to see through to the truth that is waiting to be discovered. And nature offers us this period of decline. And it gets worse and worse as we get older because it becomes more and more urgent because our time in this body, which could be a vehicle for awakening, is shortening because life is temporary. So it becomes more and more urgent, we get older and older, and we still don't learn. Because we're so accustomed to hanging on, gratifying, distracting, and then we start meditating. Meditation takes us into more and more awareness of the impermanence, the suffering, and the emptiness of all these phenomena. Then when we come back into worldly interactions, worldly ways of doing things, we see the world and hopefully it transforms our relationship to the body, to aging, to sickness, to death itself. What dies? The heart doesn't die. But consciousness may disappear in the way that we know it, but it may re-arise in another life so the journey isn't over, but hopefully we would be able to come back and finish the work, or not come back at all, and attain to freedom from the suffering of bodies and worlds. So to be able to see the fear, we're so vulnerable to fear of death, of illness, of disability. This is not an easy thing to overcome. But really, the worst of it is that we're afraid of the fear. We never get past the fear, because fear is quite frightening. If we were able to get past the fear and see the impermanence of it, we wouldn't give it so much mileage. And because other people's fear is contagious, it doubles the fear in us. But if we can go to the body and feel the sensation of reactions to that fear, that will give us a handle on it. So we can come back to the stillness in the heart, which can look fear in the eye and know the ending of fear. So we want higher rebirth, and we want the ending of birth, the ending of old age, the ending of sickness, we want awakening. This practice has a purpose, and the purpose is to free us from these worldly conditions once and for all. So we have to see the true condition of the mind, and how much we give vent to that which is untrue, and that which fortifies our delusion even more. So, be friends with people who have some wisdom. You can thrive in your illness, you can be enlightened in disability. It doesn't stop us from gaining that ultimate wisdom. We can't get there through thinking. So we have to be taught, and that which is going to teach us is becoming familiar with the mind-body process, and that is going beyond concepts. That requires us to have a lot of faith and trust in this process of investigation. Having faith carries through to every step. It's not just faith in the beginning, it's faith in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. So even in the middle of an illness we have to trust that even this illness is a teaching, a teacher. So we respect it instead of being frightened by it. You can get stronger because the light in the mind is so bright and so powerful that it illuminates the whole body. And it can illuminate in such a way that sometimes illnesses disappear. But that's not why we practice. The body will die. But you can sometimes heal an incurable sickness through the awakened mind. Sayadaw Upandita told me once, that some of the people that come on retreat get cured of their disease because their practice is so deep. But we're not practicing to cure the body because the body will never be cured. The physical is impermanent. But the mind, the heart, can be healed. Thank you for those wise words. You're very welcome. I'm just echoing what the Buddha has taught me. So where is the Buddha? The Buddha is here with us, here and present. As long as we practice The Buddha is with us. Is it okay if you elaborate what you mean by the mind-body process? Well, the mind is our ability to see and to know. And it's not a brain. The brain is just connecting us to our worldly functions and, and our bodily functions. But if you study through the silence, if our mental agitation is stilled and quieted and we sit in silence in the present moment and we practice being aware of of the breath and go more deeply into the breath, eventually we start to be aware of the knowing of the breath. And there will come a point where you actually see the mind or the mental element the mentality, that the mentality and the physical, what we're aware of, whatever objects or dhammas arise in the mind, they're different. There's mentality and there's materiality. If you're aware of, say, your hand, so that which is seeing the form is different than what it sees. And the process of seeing, the consciousness, is mentality. And the form that it sees is the objective part of it. It's the object or that which we experience. So they're separate, they're not the same. And if you study that which sees, even that arises moment by moment, it's not solid. Consciousness is not solid. has no color, no gender, no form, no shape, no time. What is it? We cannot really describe it. But we can experience it. And that's a very special ability of human being, is this ability to have this reflective, reflexive, self-reflexive agility or faculty to be able to know our experience and to reflect on it. So there is this faculty of mentality, the power of the mind, and then there's that which is known. And both of those are impermanent. That, also that faculty is, it's arising and ceasing. The knowing moment is a process, and the that which we experience is also arising and ceasing. If you look in a microscope, what will you see? Whatever you put on a slide, does it sit still? Does it move? What's it made up of? It has an atomic nature. Is this true? This is going into quantum theory in a way. There is nothing in this universe that sits still for a second. So it's very difficult to measure that which is always in motion. Nowadays, there's such powerful instruments for measuring, but the Buddha didn't have these instruments. Yet, through the power of the mental element that can see and know this infinitesimally small, micro, nano universe, you're able with the mind to know the process of the material world that the body is also just processes hung together, strung together, by this complexity of connected energies, which are impermanent. Actually, this whole earth is impermanent. Even the universe is breathing, breathing in light years. We can't even conceive of a breath that the universe takes, moment by moment. It's really quite startling when we try to conceive of it. It's inconceivable. But within consciousness, consciousness can can seem quite small. But when you meditate, the mind is vast. It's limitless. The faculty that allows us to experience that mentality is limited because of what it what it's contained. But the experience of it is limitless. And that's the mystery that we have to explore. We cannot describe it. We cannot know it. But that is what we are. Not that which we can encapsulate in the body. That isn't what it is. But it's the awareness that energetically we have access to. And we can only access it through silence. That's what we're trying to wake up to. That's what we can have intimations of when we still the mind and develop a lot of internal balance and equilibrium. We can have intimations of this exalted reality, which will not reveal itself to the ignorant mind that is caught in clinging to worldly experience or knowledge. But when we sit bowing to that silence, kneeling silently at the feet of the silent, then there is no sound. And yet it's like silent thunder. It's so loud that it, it brings the world to its knees, not just our heart. Everything is insignificant compared to that. Even the greatest achievements of the world are insignificant compared to that. We want to wake up to that reality, but we have a lot of delusion. We believe that this body belongs to us, that this is who we are in fact. We identify with it, we attach to it, and it can produce a lot of pleasant experience. But there is no experience so fulfilling as the experience of that ending of worldly experience and gratification. It's a transcendent, inexplicable, indescribable knowing. And it is the mental faculty which can approach and touch that. Not physically at all. It's just a knowing. You can't keep it, you can't own it, you can't control. You can only surrender to that. That means the complete overcoming of self-identity and belief in this self. It's a total surrender. We human beings, with our egos, So well-constructed, polished, dressed up, invested in, cannot come near that. But when we divest ourselves of all the worldly things that we give value to, then we can come closer and closer to it in a posture of absolute humility. In death, at the time of death is also a very powerful opportunity because the body is slipping away and one can really let go in one blink of an eye, total letting go, total freedom from suffering. The brain will never get enlightened. It's a different mind. The dhamma mind is the heart. You could be so educated, but maybe that would be a hindrance rather than a help. Because the most uninformed or untooled brain, illiterate person might have a better chance at awakening than a person with a PhD, I'd have to say. Because we can get so caught up with and convinced by our concepts. And then that becomes a hindrance. The thinking mind can only take us so far. And we get caught up in information. This is not information. This is awareness. Present moment awareness, which goes to the level of the transcendent. There is no language for it. It's the language of silence. It's wordless. Do you ever walk by the Ottawa River? You see the water flowing. Do you ever sit there and just watch the water flow? Then eventually the mind is not even wondering where is it going. Your consciousness just becomes at one with the river. And it doesn't try to hold on to that bit of water, it just lets it flow. And it has a certain amount of peace in just knowing the flowing. And that's it. Just knowing the flowing. There's no water, there's no you. There's just knowing the flowing. And there's a stillness in that. That's not your brain. You're you're not in the brain at that moment, you're in your heart. But these are words, the experience of it will be manifest, and then you will understand. Thank you. Thank you for tonight. I was reading Ajahn's Meadow where he was referring to the sound of silence. But he was also mentioning an approach of meditation where he was trying to be conscious of consciousness itself and not the object of it. What you could maybe say about that. This is an area that is really important because anything that you focus on, you focus on the breath or you focus on the body or you focus on the movement, but if you focus on sound, my main practice has been that hearing sound. I learned it from a Burmese master, and he called it the jet plane to Nibbana. The jet plane to Nibbana being hearing. Do you know the last sense that we lose at death is hearing, hearing consciousness, If you focus on the hearing, then that sound is vibration. And it's an experience that is knowable. Your consciousness at the ear door, there's hearing consciousness, right? And there's the sense of hearing. At the ear door, there is contact with sound. And when the sound strikes the ear door... There's hearing consciousness, just like when you smell, there's a scent, there's the nose. When the scent hits your nose, you have smelling consciousness. When a form strikes the eye, the optic nerve, you have sight, right? So the five senses are like that. And the mind, when you have a thought, an idea, then that has mental consciousness And with hearing consciousness, the sound can go into a frequency that changes. It might be a low frequency, it might change to a higher frequency. And as you become accustomed to it, eventually, when the sound hits a very, very high frequency, what is the highest frequency? It's inaudible. But they're still hearing. So when your hearing consciousness is listening, this happens over time. It takes a skill. We practice with listening to even the sound of your heartbeat or the sound of silence, which you can hear and walk around with, and you will hear this internal vibration, which we can turn into our meditation object. And you can actually go into samadhi by listening to that. And over time your samadhi will deepen and deepen to the point where you will be able to hear very, very high frequency and it comes to a point where that high frequency is so high that you hear nothing. And that's just it. Your consciousness is so adept that you can hear the silence. And your mind is at one with the silence, when the mind is hearing the silence, then it can actually turn inward and know itself. So you can consciously reflect, the mind can consciously, or the heart, if you want you can name it and say that this knowing quality of consciousness reflexively knows itself. And that is a very important moment. Because when knowing consciousness can turn inward, it's an infinite number of mirrors. Then one can go into a dimensionless knowing. It's transcendent. Then there's no consciousness. But you're fully present. And that disappearance of consciousness is in the vicinity of Nibbāna. You can realize the unconditioned. So that can take us right to awakening. If you can understand the logistics of it, just to know that there is that possibility is enough. Nibbana is the going out of the flame, but it doesn't mean that there is no fire. It's illumination. When the mind is totally illumined, the fire doesn't burn anymore, but there is total illumination. There's no more fire of wanting. It's completely gone out. But there's total awareness.